Hi, welcome to St. Luke's U, where you become a disciple. I am Dr. Jonathan Gross, and today we're going to be taking another look at the Gospel according to John. This series, as you may recall from previous weeks, is subtitled Meeting Jesus in a Divided World. And I think today's lecture is going to cover what that means in perhaps the most direct way that we have seen so far. The title of this is Love After Hate. And I realize that's a little bit dramatic, but it does follow from something that we see in the farewell discourse. That is the span of Jesus's teachings that run from about chapter 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John. So you might remember this from last week when we were discussing the then story and the now story of the two-layer drama, how the experience of Jesus and the things Jesus said and did and the ways people received him were in many ways mirrors of the experience that the community of Christians receiving the gospel would understand. And so part of that discussion was John 15, 18, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so what Jesus is saying, or what the author of the gospel of John, I should say, really is saying, is he's trying to tell his congregation living at the end of the first century CE, that if they're experiencing persecution, their experience mimics what Jesus himself went through. One of the things that's really fascinating about John 15, 18 and this teaching on how to manage hatred from the world is that it comes right after John fifteen seventeen, which is the end of a passage talking about this, where Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. Nobody has greater love than the person who lays down their life for their friends. And he ends this paragraph saying, this is my command to love each other. And so we have this fascinating contrast going on where Jesus tells his followers to love each other and then reminds them, oh, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so this whole teaching about love that we have in the gospel according to John, it is love after hate. It's for a community that has experienced hatred, and yet he's calling them to love. And so today I want to talk a little bit more about this love command in the gospel according to John. And I'm going to start out this discussion by pointing out a problem with this command that many people have pointed to. So what I put on the screen right here, this is the end of Matthew chapter 5. This is the part of Matthew's, uh, or the part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is presenting these antitheses. So he says, you have heard this Old Testament law, or this interpretation of Old Testament law, but I say to you, and then Jesus gives a more rigorous ethic to his listeners. And so at the end of Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to you, love your neighbor, that's derived from Leviticus 19.18, and hate your enemy, that might be some uh, interpretation built on that potentially. But Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he says to love people who are not like you and who are very different from you. And this ethical directive at the end of Matthew chapter 5 is probably one of the most uh, beautiful passages in the Bible because it tells us to love people who are very different from us. Um, In fact, Richard Dawkins, who in 2006 wrote The God Delusion and 
is a well-known atheist. He actually wrote a column called Atheists for Jesus. And he started off his article praising the directions of Jesus from Matthew 5, uh, calling them examples of human super niceness. And he said that this was a wonderful, wonderful thing to have in society and a wonderful thing to be teaching you because whereas Darwinism generally causes life to have self-interest optimized and maximized, human super niceness, a form of which occurs in the teachings of Jesus at the end of Matthew 5, go beyond all of this and they teach people to resist what is frankly the brutality of a darwinian survival instinct and so he ends up writing this article saying hey um it's actually a good idea for atheists to be pointing to jesus's teaching and then you know he goes on of course to say a bunch of condescending and frankly sophomoric things about religion but you know it, it it's very surprising here he is pictured in this atheist for jesus t-shirt that he finds the direction of jesus in matthew chapter 5 so captivating that it sends him to launch this column called atheists for jesus and the delightful part of it is that he said that if jesus were around today he would probably flip the t-shirt and call it jesus for atheists which is just an absolutely beautiful sentiment um but here's the problem with Matthew 5 when you compare it to John chapter 15. John 15, and you can see in John 15, 12, which is that second paragraph on the screen right now, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, or really if you kind of rework the syntax to make it easier to understand, nobody has greater love than the person who lays down their life for their friends. And in many ways, this commandment in John chapter 15 seems considerably more narrow than the instruction of Jesus that we have at the end of Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even the pagans do that? And then in John chapter 15, we get a version of Jesus's teachings where Jesus is just saying, well, my command is to love each other. And this love command seems not directed towards other people. It seems not directed to people unlike us. It seems only directed towards one's own and towards the people who fit the very narrow sectarian concerns that we have. So, Ernst Kesemann, who is a, uh, a well-known, famous 20th century New Testament scholar, he writes this in his exposition of Johanna theology based on chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. He says, if love should turn out to be the concrete expression of unity, unity remains love's origin and its basis, limiting love to this matter of unity. Distinctions like these indicate that the concept of love in the fourth gospel is not without problems. It is not even universally recognized, but it's, it's plain to Ernst Kesemann that John demands love for one's brethren, but not for one's enemies. And correspondingly, that Jesus loves his own, but not the world. There is no indication in John that love for one's brother would also include love toward one's neighbor, as demanded by other books of the New Testament. So in the Gospel according to John, we have a certain conundrum going on. The Gospel according to Matthew, uh, and really Luke, with, especially with the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have this strongly communicated idea 
that love of neighbor includes people who are very different from us. Then in the gospel, according to John, the command is for love and for unity. And it really seems to be this intra-communal command. So is the gospel of John just ethically inferior to the rest of the New Testament? I would say no. I would say that the gospel according to John is addressing a different situation. And it is a situation that I think in many ways applies especially sharply to us. Social identity theorists have recognized that when it comes to identity formation, the most controversies, the most difficulties are not with shaping identity between two peoples who are very dissimilar and who might never meet each other face to face. There's going to be controversy. If there is going to be sharp polemic, it's going to be aimed at the people who are most similar to us. So, you know, in uh, in politics right now, a lot of primaries are going on. And I think you'll see sometimes the rhetoric of one Democrat against another Democrat or one Republican against another Republican, even though on the whole political scale, they're uh, relatively close to each other. You'll find that in the ways they talk about each other in primary season, uh, despite the closeness they have, you'll start to see them butt heads. And I think in a lot of ways, it can be really hard, maybe even harder for us, for similar reasons, to love the people who are very, very similar to us, but just a little bit different. It can be really hard to love the person who is part of our family and who has the same relative, the same background, the same upbringing, but lands in a different place politically or lands in a different place socially or just has different philosophical opinions, different ways that they handle life. I think in a lot of ways, it can be much harder to find unity with people who are like us, very much like us, except for a small difference than it is to find unity with people who are completely different from us. And so what I think we have with something like the Matthean instruction to love neighbor and love enemies, that is an instruction for us to look at the people who are very different and to seek out ways to connect and to show love and to show care. But I think the gospel according to John, addressed as it is to a community with a thick and entangled history, addresses a group of people who, in many ways, we might be able to identify with more. People who have members of the community who are just a little different in some significant, even if ultimately slight ways. The people who are most similar, but still meaningfully different within the ideological spectrum that is available. So I'm going to go ahead and show you a slide here of different kinds of Christian groups that the gospel according to John interacts with. So we have, and, and all of these, I think, are believers. And these are people that we have evidence of existing based on the kinds of uh, redirections that the gospel according to John is offering to people. So there are Christians in the community of believers that John is addressing at the end of the first century, some of whom were followers of John the Baptist 
and they might highly regard him. And so uh, the author of the gospel, according to John, has to remind his readers, actually, John the Baptist, he was the lamp, not the light. He was the one preparing the way. He was not the way, the truth, and the life itself. He was paving the way for the light. He himself was not the light. There's also crypto-Christians. So you might remember last week, one of the fears that casted a pall over the Johannine community was the fear of getting excommunicated from the synagogue. Uh, there may still be Christians, Jewish Christians, who actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were afraid of being found out. So you might have those secret believers inside the Johannine community. Um, you might also have Christians who did publicly show faith in Jesus, but maybe something like the concept of uh, communion, of eating flesh and drinking blood kind of turned them off. And so they're Christians, but they're no longer part of the Johannine community of Christians. And then you have uh, possibly another group, which would be Christians, but those who associate themselves possibly with major teachers that we see in the New Testament, like Peter and Paul, but they just you know, they uh, they haven't adopted the way of thinking about Jesus that the people in the Johannine community address. And so we have evidence of these different kinds of groups in the gospel according to John. So in chapter one, and then also in chapter three, we have this uh, these kinds of statements that talk about how John the Baptist was important, but not the Messiah himself. Um, we also have this shade thrown at... Jewish Christians who really do believe in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, because they don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue, they don't openly, openly acknowledge their faith. And you'll notice that the author of the Gospel of John doesn't say that these people are unbelievers. They're called believers. They just happen to love human praise more than praise from God. And so John isn't calling these people non-Christians, but he is saying that they need to do better. This paragraph at the end of John chapter 6 right here, where Jesus basically has the PR failure and a bunch of his disciples leave him, this is right after he gives his teaching on communion. And so uh, Raymond Brown at least thinks that there are Christians uh, who were part of the Johannine community, but then decided to leave over some issue with doctrine or practice within the Johannine community. And these are people who would have been publicly known as believers before their departure. And then, uh, you know, another thing going on with that sort of foot race between Peter and Paul on Resurrection Sunday, uh, or not between Peter and Paul, I'm sorry, between Peter and John on Resurrection Sunday, we have uh, in John chapter 20, a little foot race where it's very clear that the beloved disciple, that is John, got to the empty tomb before Peter did. And that could be a sort of subtle way of uh, trying to show some superiority for the beloved disciple over and against uh, St. Peter. So in the Gospel of John, we see that the, the author is trying to call in a variety of groups of Christians who might all have various levels of problems with the mode of following Jesus that the Johannine community, or at least uh, the author of the fourth gospel, would like to see believers follow. And this is a lot of diversity. It's a lot of different groups that the author of the fourth gospel is trying to pastor. And 
these groups, they're all believers. I haven't even gotten into the groups that are not really what the author of the Gospel of John would consider Christian. I haven't even discussed the other parties like those that John calls the world. We have a lot of reference to the world for God so loved the world. That's the beginning of probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. And we have all kinds of discussion about the world opposing the Johannine Christians. So that's not even talking about the world. I'm not even talking about the groups who are just broadly labeled the Jews, probably explicitly non-Christian Jews who are persecuting Christian groups. That's not even on that list of four groups. And then there's also, uh, as we'll see in the first letter of John, that there is an emerging group of Christians who don't necessarily believe that Jesus actually showed up in the flesh. And so there's an emerging group of Christians that seem to have a proto-Gnostic interpretation of the arrival of Jesus. And I haven't even gotten into all of those groups, but we still have a lot of different kind of subtle variations of Christianity going on inside the Johannine community. So I think when we recognize that the community of Christians that the author of the Gospel of John is addressing is considerably divided, I think when we have that concept in place, we can then take a look at some of these love commands and realize these aren't actually cheap. This isn't just intrasectarian teaching. This is about trying to create unity in a divided group of people. So from the end of John chapter 14, this is uh, right after the foot washing. Jesus tells his disciples, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. Uh, Where I'm going, you cannot come. So a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is actually a very radical instruction for the author of the gospel according to John to give to his congregation, particularly considering that it's a relatively divided congregation. It would be so much easier for the author of the gospel of John. And look, he's the, the author of the gospel of John, uh, the person who's putting this gospel together, he's not... Uh, necessarily refraining from throwing shade at these groups with which he has minor disagreements. Uh, The only reasons why scholars are able to pick up, for example, that there is a group in the community who thinks too highly of John the Baptist is because the author of the gospel, according to John, is throwing in all this teaching that says, hey, John the Baptist was important. He just was not the Messiah himself. And, And so, you know, it would be very easy for the author of the gospel according to John to just smoke all of these people who uh, he has some level of disagreement with, but instead he hangs the recognition of what it is to be a Christian on intracommunal love. That's a pretty remarkable thing when you consider that this is actually probably a divided community with a lot of groups who have a lot of different opinions about different things. Then in chapter 15, we have this command from Jesus, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so 
what Jesus says is he he's telling the congregation that they are friends of Jesus because they are up to Jesus's business. They know what Jesus is doing. And in fact, they're going to do some of the same things by loving in the self-sacrificial way. The love of Jesus on the cross has been already self-sacrificial. And what's happening in John chapter 15 is Jesus is teaching the community to show love for one another in a way that mirrors that sacrificial self-giving love. That's something that's really hard to do when you recognize that this is sacrificial self-giving love to people who disagree on some very important matters. And one of the beautiful things that we see going on in the gospel according to John is that this model of love and unity is nothing less than the triune God. And so this teaching on loving one another that we have in John chapter 15 that is uh, modeled after the way of Jesus, that's modeled after the self-sacrificial way of Jesus, all of this is on the heel of the vines and the branches passage that you might be familiar with. So Jesus tells his disciples, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I am you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what Jesus is doing is right before he tells his followers to love one another, he's basing all of that, co- uh, that, all of that commandment in the unity that exists between Jesus and Jesus's followers. And so what he's saying is that this radical t- command to show unifying love to other people, even if it means giving up something really important to you, even if it means giving up your very life, that is a corollary of a connection to Jesus that everyday believers have. And then one of the things that is really radical, when you take a look at verse 9, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And so one of the crazy things that's going on in here is this self-sacrificial love that communities, that members of the Christian community are supposed to give to one another, even in a divided circumstance. This love is modeled after the triune unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Uh, One of the things that's really cool when we see this played out is actually, if you look at uh, John 15, 13, where Jesus says the greatest love is to lay down one's life for one's friends, uh, you'll notice I've got a couple of blobs of Greek. Uh, You'll notice that those blobs of Greek, they're almost exactly the same. In fact, the one word in each group Uh, that's different. Those are actually just two different forms of the same verb. So in John chapter 10, Jesus has said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then in 1513, Jesus says to his followers, the greatest love is to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so what's going on is this command towards self-sacrificial love. This is modeled in the way of Jesus very radically. And the kind of unity that is supposed to uh, come out of this radical, self-sacrificial love is an echo. It is a, maybe it's an echo, maybe it's a foretaste. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's a part of the same kind of dance that exists within the Trinity. So we have in John chapter 17, uh, this is what frequently gets called the high priestly prayer. If you want to be a little bit polemical about it, you could call this the real Lord's prayer, uh, because this is the 
the prayer of Jesus that isn't just a model for everyone else's prayer, but this is like Jesus's actual personal prayer to God. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And so what happens in John chapter 17 is, is we have this prayer from Jesus to the Father where the unity between Father and Son that we see displayed in the Trinity itself, Jesus wants that level of unity to be a template for the kind of unity that exists within the Christian community. And that unity is how the world will know that the Father sent Jesus and loved the community as the Father loved the Son. So John grounds this call for Christian unity in the unity of the Trinity, in the unity of the Father and the Son, and in the self-giving love of Jesus for all of God's people. And that reminds me of this quotation from A.W. Tozer. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. And so I think it's really interesting taking a, another look at this sort of group of uh, Christians who were adjacent to, but maybe not in the center of the bell curve of the congregation that the Gospel of John was addressing. The call for unity is based on the self-giving love of Jesus and on the unity that exists between Father and Son within the Trinity. And so one of the things that's really interesting is it's not that uh, John is talking to the crypto-Christians and saying, okay, just look at these uh, non-Johannine Christians and try to be more like them. Um, and then maybe you John the Baptist followers and apostolic Christians, maybe if you could be a little bit more secret about the uh, heralds that you happen to like, kind of like the crypto-Christians, maybe we could all get along. He doesn't try to sort of take the average of these different groups and get them to be more like each other that way. What the author of the Gospel of John does is simply points them to the unity that exists within the Godhead, points them to the self-giving love of Jesus on the cross. And so I wonder if we might be able to transpose that to our situation today. You know, I was thinking about these different varieties of Christians who were maybe on the fringes of the Johannine community, or maybe not necessarily on the fringes of that community, but just uh, different Christian groups who might have struggled with Johannine Christianity in various ways. And to me, their struggles map on to some of the struggles that we might see among fellow believers today. So much like the folks who uh, believed in John the Baptist, who had a nostalgia for this earlier messianic movement. We probably have believers in our churches every day who are nostalgic, who long for good old days when maybe the worship music was a different style and the liturgy had structure that it just doesn't have anymore. And they struggle with modern church and have a hard time participating because of that. 
Uh, you might have fashionable Christians who recognize just how cringy certain expressions of Christianity can be, and in many ways find it necessary to hide some of their Christian practice in much the way that Jewish Christians had to hide their Christian practice for fear of getting excommunicated from a community that they were a part of. And then we might have burned Christians, believers who had negative experiences with their churches. Maybe we might even have people who were abused, who at the end of the day still hold to very precious, very holy, very real belief in Jesus. But because of some really powerful negative experiences they've had, find it unbelievably difficult to darken the door of a church. And then also kind of in the same line of followers of apostolic Christians who might not have gotten along well with the uh, Johannine expression of Christianity, we might have people in our churches who, you know, might follow one celebrity pastor or one celebrity biblical scholar or teacher or something like that, and then just have a hard time getting along with Christians who do things a little bit differently. In much the same way that that little circle I had of different subgroups within the Johannine church didn't name everybody that the author of the fourth gospel might have had on his radar. That circle diagram I just had of various types of Christians who might sometimes struggle with participation in our communities is not exhaustive. We're going to have a lot of other ways in which believers have a hard time getting along with each other. But I think the question that the Gospel of John would have for us is, uh, are we looking in the right places for our unity? Are we looking at the unity that exists with the Trinity and trying to model that in our churches? Are we embodying the kind of self-sacrificial love that Jesus embodied on the cross when it comes to dealing with the people who are like us, who are very similar to us, but different in those ways that are just meaningful enough to really grind our gears and get under our skin. I think that is a challenge that the author of the gospel according to John was dealing with in his own time. And I think that kind of challenge is one that we deal with today. And that kind of challenge is one that makes these commands to love one another, to have love within the churches that models the love that Jesus had for the churches that makes that love not just an inferior version of the love your neighbor command from elsewhere in the gospels, but actually a radical, challenging, and difficult command for all of us to carry out. So as we look for ways to try to find unity in our churches, I would hope that we would learn how to look to the model of God, to look to the model of Christ on the cross, and also to recognize that loving the people really without reserve, with the same kind of self-sacrificial giving that Jesus modeled, it can be really, really challenging when it's the people who are right next to us. But that challenge is an absolutely worthwhile challenge to take up. And when we are loving the people, really unreservedly, self-sacrificially loving the people who are closest to us. We really are modeling the work of Jesus. Next week, the lecture is called Cruciform Exaltation. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the significance of the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I think in a lot of ways, it is going to continue 
with some of the ideas that we've seen today. See you next time.